I guess last month we did a survey as a church called our Engage Survey, trying to figure out where you fit in and how you belong. I want to let you kind of know an update of where we are on that. We're been going through our engaged team, has been going through and just processing that data, and we're learning a lot of really good things about you. But one thing that we've learned is only about half of our people have actually filled it out. And so we would love the other half of you to step up and fill that out because we, want, um, we don't want to just simply be a church that sits in a pew. We do want to be a church that's encouraging one another, that's engaging our community for the gospel, and we want to figure out what your gifts and talents and skills are so that we can use you, that God can leverage you for his kingdom here in Tyler, Texas. And so if you have not done that, um, how do they do that, Justin? They go to our app, go to our church app. You can also um, find it on our website, I think. Um, And so get that filled out. Um, Are there paper copies still? In the library, there will be paper copies. And so please um, get that done. Connect with us and join in ministry with your gifts um, as we share the gospel in Tyler, Texas. So as we start this morning, I want to kind of give you a little idea of where we're going because the the front end is going to be really kind of heavy theologically. um, And to get to where we're going, I need you to kind of hang with me for a little bit. So um, the very first thing, we're going to do is we're going to talk about angels. Then we're going to talk about that present that every single parent has given their kid. Then we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about faith and doubt, um, trust and fear. And then we're going to talk about what that means for you and I. And so, like I said, I need you to hang with me for this first little part um, and, and hang in there and grasp this so that the very end, it really makes sense and comes home. So, sound like a plan. Sound like a plan. Amen. Yeah, there we go. So um, what is the first thing you think of when you think of an angel? Here's what I think of. And if your first response was not, ah, you need prayers. That, that's my youngest, Kaylee. She does not mind the camera. But one of the things I think of when I think of an angel is my children, most of the time, but occasionally they are demon-possessed. Um, but most of the time, I think of um, my children as little angels. Um, you might think of statues, um, like this one or this next one. Um, maybe Christmas comes to mind and ornaments that you put on a tree or that decorate their house. Maybe paintings that illustrate Bible stories. This is Abraham and Isaac, and the story was Abraham is stopped from killing his son by an angel. If you've been there on Wednesday night, this should seem really fresh to you. Um, So those are some things that we think of when we think about angels. But the word angel in the, the Greek language is angelos, and it means angel or messenger. The word angel appears um, 34 out of 66 books in the Bible. There are 108 references in the Old Testament. There are 165 references in the New Testament. Even the biblical leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, had different ideas of what angels did. Um, The Sadducees did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. It was no resurrection from the dead. And so there was even some conflict regarding angels there. And it's something that we don't talk about much. And for for a long time, it seemed like there was a fascination with angels. Um, The the Christmas story 
movie. Um, is that right? Yeah, the Christmas story. Um, I, it's not Christmas time. I'm not in that mindset. Um, but then there were shows in the 80s and the 90s, things like Touched by an Angel or Angels in the Outfield. And there was this, this fascination with this unseen world that's all around us. And then there seems to be a shift as we got later into the 2000s, into 2010 and, and on, with let, let's forget about an unseen world and let's just focus primarily on the physical world and what we can see. But one of the things that I think all of us can agree on is it seems there is a world beyond what we actually see. Like there is something that happens. There are things that happen that are beyond our explanation. There are things that we know that that take place beyond the physical reality that we can see and touch and hear and smell. Because things that happen sometimes don't have a great explanation. And so angels make their appearance throughout the Bible, and they were really important to the Jews. The Jewish people um, held angels in very high regard. And so this book of Hebrews is a book that is written to a group of Hellenistic Jews who are struggling in their faith, struggling to find faith in this Messiah, and they've decided to follow him, and now they're questioning whether they're going to continue. And so the writer of Hebrews is urging them to to strengthen their faith, to continue following Jesus. And so last week we looked at this. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So these angels keep appearing in Scripture. In Malachi, they're referred to as just mere men. Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then in Luke, as John is in prison, there are some messengers. This word again, angelos, is these messengers are sent to John. It says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. And so these messengers seem to be mere men. And then there's another sense where these messengers are these heavenly beings. Where they seem to be these angelic, and there's there's pictures in Revelation. Um, One from Job, Job chapter 38. Um, And this is towards the end of the story. Job has been struggling with his faith and struggling with all that he's lost. And God answers him. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring rod across it? 
on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstones. While the morning stars sang together, all the angels shouted for joy. So these angels, these heavenly beings that are beyond the physical world, the physical time and space. And then in 2 Kings, um, is Elisha, Israel is under attack. And this man is struggling to see as um, 2 Kings 6, um, he looked up in the hills. Um, sorry, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked up and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. There's this scene where the servant's really struggling to believe that God is going to deliver. And Elisha prays, and he looks up, and he sees all around him these angels, these horses, these chariots of fire, knows that God is with him. And then there's a third sense that we see angels, and it's this demonic sense. Satan's angels. Um, Second Peter says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be laid there for judgment, the angels, and then in Jude, sorry, Jude, um, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling. These he has kept silent or kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So, so there's this sense these angels are just mere men, these messengers. Then there's these heavenly beings, and there's the demonic. And, and the, it talks about different ministries of angels. Um, minister to the people. They are messengers. They're protectors. They carry out God's will. They give the law. And there's there's a sense that angels serve. And part of our fascination, I think, is we like to believe that there's something or someone out there watching over us, protecting us, caring for us. Like we have these guardian angels. We have this world that exists beyond the physical that we see every day. And we find great hope in that. And so the Hebrew writer is writing to this church and these people who tend to put a lot of hope and faith and trust in angels. After all, it was the angels who along with God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And and if these messengers are so great to carry the eternal law of God, then why in the world would you not put your hope and faith and trust in them? But then the Hebrew writer comes back and he says, but you need to know this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. It's almost as if they had put their hope and their trust in some angels. You get the sense as you're reading here that the angels were so highly revered that it was easy to lose focus on what really mattered and to see the angels as their savior 
rather than Jesus. Have you ever given your child a present? And you give them a present, and you're so excited to see them open it. And they open the present, and there's this, ah, I love this. Thank you so much for the gift. And then you turn around, and no more than five minutes later, the child is not there playing with the present you got them. They're playing with the box that it came in. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Do you realize how much I spent on this present? Do you realize how much thought went into this and wrapping it and making sure on Christmas morning or on your birthday you would enjoy it and you would love it? And here you are playing with the box that it came in. It's kind of missing the point. And I think the Hebrew writer wants them to know and understand that here is Jesus. Don't play with what he came in. Don't play with the box because the contents of the box are so much greater than the box. And the box might be interesting and it might be cool, but the box will not give you life, but its contents will. The contents will give you joy. They will give you purpose. They will give you a sense of belonging. They will give you all that you need to sustain you. Don't get so focused on the packaging that you miss the true present. Don't miss out. And so, he begins to encourage them by reminding them That Jesus is greater than all the angels. And in verse 4 he said, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He begins with this litany, seven items, seven ways that Jesus is greater than the angels. The first, his name is greater than the angels. It's just simply the name that he's given. Jesus is above the name that the angels have been given. Then, he goes on. Verse 5. For you, or for two, which of you did the angels of God ever say, you are my son, and today I've become your father. Again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. I think I messed my slides up there. Sorry. (laughs) The angels worship Jesus. The angels worship Jesus. I'm just going to follow your slides because I think I'm off here. Um, For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father again. I will be his father and you will be my son. Next, angels serve Jesus. Angels serve Jesus. Um, Going down to to verse 6. When God brings his firstborn into the world, let all the angels worship him. So the angels worship Jesus, and then going down to verse 7, the angels serve Jesus. Speaking to the angels, he said, Make his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has sent, set you above 
your companions, by anointing you with the oil of joy. And then going down to verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits who serve those who inherit salvation? So the angels worship Jesus, the angels also serve Jesus. And the other thing that Jesus does is Jesus brings salvation. He he does what the angels cannot do. He brings salvation to the people, verse 2 of chapter 2. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received as punishment, how shall we escape it if we ignore so great a salvation? It's possible to be so focused on the angels that you miss the salvation that Jesus has to offer the people. Then, the world is not subject to the angels. The world is subject to Jesus. It says in verse 5, Now it is to the angels that He has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. And then skipping to verse 9, He says, But, and that's not at the present time, but now, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he he entered into death, filled death with himself so that everyone in death could find Christ. Then Jesus suffered for our redemption. He suffered for our redemption, and the angels did not. The angels didn't suffer and die for you. It's Jesus who did. He says in verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And the the idea of a pioneer is it's this trailblazer, one who's been through the battle one who's been through the difficult time, one who's been through death so that everyone could find life. Then he finishes up with verse 14 as he talks about Jesus being our high priest. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity. We we talk a lot about Jesus' divinity. But here he points to his humanity. His human likeness, that he went through what we have gone through. He went, he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for their sins, the sins of the people, because he himself suffered When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
The, the word atonement here is only found twice in the entire New Testament. The other time, it's when a tax collector is standing next to a Pharisee. And the Pharisee says, God, look at me. Look how great I am. Thank you for not making me like this tax collector. And the tax collector falls to the ground. And he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And the word mercy here is the exact same word for atonement in Hebrews. It's this term of great faith. It's the tax collector saying to God, God, I am completely putting everything I have in your hands and trusting that you have the power to forgive and release what's held me back. And remember, they're talking to a group of Jews that were so wrapped up in this temple system where they had to offer sacrifice. So this word atonement is this temple system word. But he's saying to the people, look, now that Jesus has gone through death, now that he's been raised to life, you can trust in him. You can put everything you have in him and trust that he has the power to save you. And the angels have not been able to do that. That wasn't their purpose. See, here's the thing. Because my guess is, as we talk about angels, there's a little bit of a fascination with them. I'd like to know more about them. But my second guess is that you don't put all of your hope and trust in an angel showing up to save you. And so there's kind of this disconnect as you read Hebrews of, well, yeah, but we don't hope in angels like that. We're so far on the other side of the cross, we have this, this much clearer picture, I think, of what Jesus did, and we don't get lost in what the angels did and, and worship them or hope in them. But my guess is there are lots of things you could put in place of the angels. Lots of things that you find to put your hope and trust in to save you. Lots of things that it's easy to get distracted and lose focus and lose sight of Jesus. Lots of things that allow you to play with the box and miss the present that was intended. My guess is every day you get up, there are things that distract you and pull your attention away from Jesus, asking for you to trust in them. And the reason I think that is a safe guess is because I think it's true about me, first and foremost. That, that every day I get up, it seems if there are, as if there are things that pull my attention away from what matters. There are things that pull my attention and distract me from what I am supposed to be doing in this world. And what the Hebrew writer comes to in the end in Hebrews chapter 2 is he says, I want you to trust in this Jesus who has a greater name. 
who the angels worship, who brings salvation, who offers redemption. I want you to trust in Him because He has been through what you have been through. Because He became human like you. He understands what you've been through. Have you ever met another person who's gone through what you have gone through? Where you've lost someone really close and someone comes up and says, hey, I just want you to know, I know what you feel, and you're thinking, no, no, you, you don't know what I feel. You haven't been in my shoes. You haven't been where I've been through. You haven't gone through the divorce. You haven't lost the child. You haven't lost the job. You haven't been searching for where the next meal was going to... You don't have any idea what I'm going through. And then you meet that person who has. They went through the divorce. They lost the child. They lost the job. They didn't know where their meal was. And you think, well, no, they, they know. They can talk in terms that I understand and I relate to because they've been there with me. And what the Hebrew writer tells these people who are counting the cost right now, that's what they're doing. You know, Jesus told them to count the cost. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to take up your cross and follow me, it's going to cost you everything. You better count the cost before you do it. And there's a group that's here in the midst of struggle and they're, they're in a difficult time and they're starting to count the cost and saying, well, I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can continue this journey because it's really difficult. And his encouragement is just is not just, oh, we'll just sing some songs and everything will be okay. His encouragement is trust in the one who's been where you are. Trust in the one who's been through the wilderness. Trust in the one who's been through the pain of death. Trust in the one who's been through the uncertainty of tomorrow. Trust in the one who's been betrayed. Put your hope and trust and faith in him that he is enough to save. Trust in the one who is greater. You see, I think what they wanted was they wanted Christianity without a cross. They wanted to wake up tomorrow knowing that tomorrow was smooth sailing. Knowing that their next step was secure and their footing was strong. And he didn't give them that promise. He didn't say, just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. He says, follow Jesus and it's going to be difficult, but it's okay because he's been there and he knows and he's walked with you through the difficult times. That there is no Christianity without a cross. There's no following Jesus without death and resurrection. There's not going to be an easy way to follow him. Because it always leads through death. And I think we have this picture this idea in mind that we're going to arrive at this place in our faith where we have no more doubts. That everything is going to be fine and everything is going to be secure. In fact, we talked about doubt one time and I had someone come up to me after a sermon and they said, well, just so you know, I've never doubted. And what I would say to them 
is that you don't have faith. Because faith and doubt are married together. You cannot separate them. Because faith is not being sure of what the next step looks like and being willing to go anyway. And we look at tomorrow and there's doubt and there's fear that come with it. And the next step is so uncertain. But we say we're going to trust. Because Jesus has been there with us. When I was an intern, um, we went to camp at Abilene Christian with our students, Camp Kadish. And the first day of the week, you're given this group of students that you're going to build a relationship with and build rapport, and you're going to talk about what's going on in their life and their faith journey. And, and they want you to work to try to build trust with people. And so we had this group of, of 8 to 10 um, high school students, and we decided we were going to do a trust fall. If you've ever seen one of those, it's where everyone kind of lines up on, in parallel lines, and someone stands up on a high object, and they make their body stiff as a board, and they fall backwards and stay, and everyone catches them. And so everyone had gone except this one student. And I encouraged her. I said, oh, come on. This is going to be so good. You've got to overcome the fear. You've got to hop up here. And you got to, no, no, I can't do that. Come on, it's okay. Look, look at me. I mean, and I was a college athlete at the time, all right? So, um, I said, I can catch you by myself. Don't, just hop up there, and it's fine. And she was like a featherweight. I mean, she might have been like 100 pounds dripping wet, maybe. I mean, it's like no problem. And so she finally, after the group's convincing and encouraging her, she hops up on the air conditioner, and she's so afraid. And she's sitting here, and she keeps looking back, like, are you sure? And she, I said, okay, here's how it's going to go. Right? We're all going to line up, and I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And, and here's the problem. I was explaining what was going to happen. And in my explanation, as I said, one, two, three, go, in mid-sentence, she just goes, boom, and hits the ground. And my first reaction was, wait, 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 no, I wasn't ready. You got to try this again. <laughs> she, she found herself, like, just at the wrong time going, and we weren't, we weren't ready for it. And she hits the ground. I'm thinking, oh, wow, she's never trusted me at all this week. <laughs> it, it, it's that moment, though, of uncertainty where you stand there and there is this fear inside of you because you don't know what tomorrow looks like. And all you're doing is you're hoping and trusting that the one who's been there, who can relate to what you've been through, is going to be there to walk with you. Is going to be there to catch you. One of my favorite movies growing up was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And, and how many people have seen this movie? A lot of you, okay? There's the end of the movie where Jones 
um, and his father arrive at the crescent, the canyon of the crescent moon. And there are three tests that he's going to have to pass um, when he gets there. And right when he gets there, Mr. Donovan shoots Indiana Jones' father. So he makes it essential that Indiana Jones passes these three tests to get to the Holy Grail. And so he passes the first test, and he passes the second test, and he comes to the third and final test, and it's called the path of God. And it's this scene where he arrives, and he's, he's breathing heavy, his adrenaline's going, and he's looking out, and here is this giant cavern, this canyon, this chasm that he has to somehow get across to get to where the Holy Grail is. And he, he sits there, and he starts to think through the clues, and it says it's going to require a leap from the lion's head, a leap of faith from the lion's head. And so there's this, this point in the scene where Jones is, is standing here at this chasm, and he knows it's going to take this giant leap of faith. And he sticks his foot out, not knowing how it's going to happen. If you remember the movie, this path that could not be seen appears underneath his feet. And he walks across and he gets to the other side and he throws some sand back over where he's been so that he can find his way back. And I think we have these moments in our life where we know it's going to require this leap of faith. And we take the leap, and we land, and we feel secure. And our hope is that on the other side, we don't have to take another leap like that. That we're going to be comfortable, and that each step we take, each step that we take is going to be secure, it's going to be safe, and we're going to remember where it was. And what it means when we follow Jesus is not that you have this one giant leap and then everything else is okay. It's that following the first leap, you're going to be asked to take another one. And another one, and another one. Never really knowing where your footing is. And when you get to the point where you start trusting in the path more than the one who provides the path, more than the one who walks the path, then you've lost faith and you've settled for comfort. And what Jesus does every single day of your life is he calls you to follow him and to take this giant leap of faith. To not trust in what you see, but to trust what's beyond your perception. To trust what's beyond tomorrow. And to just simply say, come and follow me. Follow me. I know the divorce was difficult, but I'm going to be there. I've been betrayed. I've been let down. Follow me. I know losing someone is so difficult, but follow me. I know you're not sure of where the next meal comes from or where the next paycheck is going to be, but follow me. I know you don't understand the relationships and the dynamics that are at play, but follow me. And through the darkness and through the storms, Jesus is still there as a voice saying, Come, follow me. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. You never get to the place where it's comfort until you just let go of faith. 
And Jesus says, you. You come and follow me. And today I'm going to ask you to take a huge leap. And it's going to require faith. And tomorrow, I'm going to ask you to take another huge leap of faith. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I never want you to get so comfortable with your path that you lose your reliance on me. This last week in our shepherds meeting, David Litton asked us to pray some big prayers. Pray for some things that only God can do. And when he said that, there's a part of me that was afraid. It was afraid because I have become so comfortable with where I'm at. And so comfortable and just simply praying for the needs of people around me, heal this person and make this person well, that I had forgotten to think about the bigger picture of the kingdom of God. Not not just about individuals, but, but praying for God to bring revival to our nation. Praying for God to end divorce. Praying for God to stop allowing children to grow up without parents. Praying big prayers that there is no possibility that they could ever happen if God did not show up and act. And here's the deal, is right now, I think there are so many of us who are in this place who want to take the next step, who know they need to take a next step, who need to have faith to follow Jesus, and they're so afraid to do it because they don't know what tomorrow looks like. They don't know what it's going to mean to love their enemies, and they don't want to find out. They don't want to know what forgiveness is going to cost But Jesus says, trust me, come on, follow me, love people, forgive people, trust in me, give me everything you have, and I'm going to take care of your next step if you can trust in me. And I'll just tell you, I have become so comfortable in my faith that I've forgotten to pray those giant prayers. And my guess is, there's a lot of us in the same boat. who trust in a lot of things other than Jesus. And we say it with our mouth. We sing it. But my question is, has it reordered and reoriented your entire life? Because it was supposed to. No, it's supposed to. We're just ask, we kind of come to the end. If you're at one of those points like me, where you are relying so much on comfort and sight that you've kind of forgotten what it means to trust Jesus, would you just stand up?
Stand up right where you are with me. Here's, here's the thing. I would imagine most of us have been in that place. And I want to encourage you today, whatever that step is you need to take, to jump and trust in the one who's been through all that we have who's tasted death for us and come out on the other side and cling to him and not just simply what you see Father I pray this morning for all of us gathered Father wherever we are in our struggles with faith um, Father help us to see Jesus to trust in Him, to find hope in Him, to find assurance in Him, and no one else. Father, we love You. We want to serve You with all that we have and all that we are. And I pray that You would give each and every person standing here courage to take the next step. And Father, for those who are not standing Father, the, the courage to continue. To continue on in the journey. Trusting that you are more than enough for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we um, stand, we come, if you, everyone would be standing, um, we come to this place where we always offer an invitation. And if you've never taken that first initial step, we offer you that this morning. Come, have your sins washed away. Begin life anew. Find forgiveness, find healing, find life in Christ. And if we could pray for you in any way, we're going to have our ministry staff, our shepherds around this auditorium. Any way that we could pray for you, we would love to do as we stand and we sing. A refuge, you are holy and just, you are faithful and righteous, you, O Lord, are my refuge, by your mercy you cover me, under the shadow of your wings, Lord, in your presence I'll remain. You are forevermore the same. You are my refuge, my only refuge. You, oh Lord, are my refuge. In you I find rest. You're my God and my fortress. You, O oh Lord, are my refuge. By your mercy you cover me. Under the shadow of your wings, 
Lord, in your presence I'll remain. You are forevermore the same. You are my refuge, my only refuge. You, O Lord, are my refuge. It is you I will trust. You're my light in the darkness. You, O Lord, are my refuge. By your mercy you cover me. By your mercy you cover me. By your mercy you cover me. Ask that we remember Lindsay and her in our prayers. Um, the doctor thinks they've found some ways around surgery and some hope, and so um, we're praying for good news there. I want to pray really quickly um, for Lindsay and Cecilia and their family. Father, we do thank you and we trust.